Gridlions is a proud sponsor of Public Power Underground, a subsidiary of NextAir Energy and the leading transmission company in North America. Gridlions is a transmission-only utility company that's more than just wires. With operations in three regional transmission organizations, Gridlions works with electric cooperatives and municipal utilities to create collaborative solutions that integrate renewable energy and improve the reliability and resiliency of the electric grid. Learn more at gridlions.com. That's G-R-I-D-L-I-A-N-C-E dot com. We started in hard times to bring us all in Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on enthusiasts, roll on Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Welcome to Public Power Underground, recorded in person at Portland General Electric after a regional regional expansion summit hosted by Seattle City Light, Bonneville Power Administration, and Portland General Electric. We're recording a special episode on shared regional interests. I'm Paul Dockery, the creative director and host of Public Power Underground and the senior manager for energy resource strategy and planning at Seattle City Light. Joining me are four participants um, in this regional expansion summit to talk about our shared interest in regionalization and talk through all our vibes and emotions related to working together towards a solution. First up, I'm going to introduce Jan Smutry Jones. Smutney Jones. Go. I got Thank it. You. I got it right. We'll edit it out, maybe, or maybe not. Uh, the <laughs> chief executive officer of the Independent Energy Producers Association. IEP is California's oldest nonprofit trade organization, representing the interests of developers and operators of independent energy facilities and independent power marketers. Welcome, Jan. Thank you. I'm glad to have you here. It was a fun conversation upstairs, and you were a part of it. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been glad to be here. Yep. Joining Jan and I is Mary Winky. Mary is the executive director of the Public Generating Pool. The Public Generating Pool is a trade organization with, uh, with a large presence in the Northwest, representing consumer-owned utilities with own generation. Hi, Mary. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's a wonder, wonderful to have you. Seattle City Light is a member of PGP. That's true. That's true. Uh, we are also joined by Jim Shetler. I'd see. I didn't get that. I've been called worse, right. too. Yeah. Uh, Jim Shetler. Jim is the general manager of the Balancing Authority of Northern California, usually referred to as BANK. BANK is a joint powers authority and is the third largest balancing authority in California and the 16th largest balancing authority in WEC. Hi, Jim. Good afternoon. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. I'm glad to have you, too. Uh, we're going to try to make this infotaining. That's the goal. Okay. Lastly, we have Chris Robinson, also a member of PGP and also a balancing authority in the WEC. Um, Chris Robinson, or Tacoma Power is a public utility providing electric power to Tacoma, Washington and the surrounding areas and also operates its own balancing authority. Chris is the general manager for Tacoma Power. Thanks, Welcome. Paul. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. It's great to have all of us here. So uh, the, the Regional Expansion Summit hosted regulators, key stakeholders, of which you all were, uh, and leaders from the energy industry for the purpose of grounding any discussion of regional expansion in the areas where we have shared interest. Uh, in true public power underground fashion, we're going to lighten up the conversation by introducing topics with quotes from the Apple TV comedy, Shrinking, starring Jason Siegel, 
Jessica Williams and Harrison Ford, who all play psychologists. Now, I did, I warned all of you that this would be a show we discussed. Did anybody watch it? Anybody, has anybody seen some shrinking? Have you gotten this joy in your life yet? Not yet. Not yet, no. Okay. But it is a joy, and I do recommend it. Uh, well, life is about learning. That's why we're here. That's yeah, why yeah. we're here. That's why we're here. Out, out of fear that I, have, I would have no idea what you're talking about, I did watch a few episodes. And, and what do you say about oh, my it was, recommendations? It was, it's a great show. Yeah, I recommend it. Do you see? We're going to get into what I feel are like some like good, good ways of framing conversations. Looking and, forward to it. Okay, good. Um, I also watched the first two episodes, and I'll also have you know that I subscribed to Apple TV specifically to complete this assignment, so I think that's extra credit. That is, you do get extra credit. You also get the, the joy that uh, Ted Lasso Season 3 is coming out uh, next week, so maybe you can get some of those episodes. We'll see. Out. Don't push it, Paul. I, yeah, well. I, don't, I don't know. So if you watch the first two episodes of Shrinking and Ben in the West working on markets for more than just a couple years, the discussion early in the first episode will resonate. It starts with the main character, Jimmy, played by Jason Siegel, posing the question to the other two psychologists he shares a practice with, Gabby and Paul, whether they ever get tired of hearing the same issues recur over and over again, and whether they ever want to just tell the patients what to do. Paul, um, his colleague, played by Harrison Ford, responds, quote, classic compassion fatigue. We ask questions, we listen, stay judgment, non-judgmental, and most importantly, you don't make that face responding to Jason Segal's face after uh, expressing his frustration with some of his patients. Uh, uh, they also coined the phrase psychological vigilantes uh, for this problem of the ethically problematic behavior of telling patients what to do and taking away their own agency. I think it would be unfair to ask all of you if you feel like you are market vigilantes sometimes. I feel as though that would be uh, maybe a little a step too far. And, and maybe we can talk about whether sometimes you have compassion fatigue around discussing of topics. Maybe that's fair. But I wanted to start with you, Mary, because PGP put together a organized markets retrospective in 2021. And I did want to get your feel from the conversation today and the conversation we've been having recently, whether you feel like there's a difference to this conversation than prior ones, if we're making some progress, and, and anything else noteworthy you, you would take away from the conversation earlier today. Great. Thanks, Paul. Um, so first of all, I, I do think that there is a phenomenon of fatigue with this conversation because it, it has been going on for a long time, and it has been tried before and not been successful. So I think, I think it's sort of inevitable to approach the conversation with a little bit of fatigue. And, that, and the, I think the you know, task for people who are involved in this conversation is to try to come to the table with actually a fresh look, which is partly what's needed to ultimately be successful. Um, but in, in prep for this podcast, I did take a look back at the PGP retrospective and you know, really kind of articulates um, in, a, in a really... Um, um, comprehensive way, sort of the efforts that uh, the West has has entered into before to, to work on this question of regional markets. And there's a couple areas that I want to mention that kind of stuck out of me as being different now, and then okay. and then one area that I think is is not different. And and we can talk a little bit, hopefully, about sort of what then kind of drives um, the conversation forward. And I think. You know, in, in looking at, there was, you know, Indigo, RTO West, Grid West, 
the MC effort, and then ultimately EIM. And I think if you look at if you look at um, these different efforts, there were different drivers for the different efforts. You know, um, Indigo is really about kind of restructuring and order eight eight. You know, FERC kind of FERC driven. Um, RTO West, Grid West, same kind of thing, standard market rules, you know, a lot of fork activity, a lot of development of other RTOs in the country that were more the drivers. And, and I wasn't around for that, too, so, you know, if, if, if any of you gentlemen were there, you can opine on this. But my, my takeaway is that kind of the key drivers in um, those efforts were, were um, sort of regulatory and then the MC effort was started to be more operational. Now we're okay. seeing a bunch of renewables come on the system. We got to figure out how to kind of manage uh, variable generation, and and that sort of started that conversation. So a little bit different. Um, but I think that I think that the drivers of the conversation now are a little different. Um, and actually, the conversation today really articulated well for me what those drivers are and how they are different. You know, um, highly dynamic load shaping um, and different types of load that we haven't seen before. Um, decarbonization, you know, all the way to 100%, whether you're talking about 100% renewable or 100% um, uh, emission-free, you know, getting to that place. That's something that is an incredible challenge that was never a driver before. Um, and then just some of the resource adequacy and kind of reliability needs that that have been articulated and that are that people are kind of seeing in the into the future. So I think those drivers, um, you know, all of the uh, thermal resource retirements, you know, really kind of shifting the overall generation mix, and and so I I do think there's a lot of kind of operational and reliability drivers yeah. now to today that weren't there before, and there is kind of this sense of urgency. Um, and I, I don't know to what extent there was a sense of urgency before, but it does feel like there is a lot of conversation about a sense of urgency. So I do think the drivers for, for, for this conversation are a little different. Um, I do think many of the issues, though, many of the sticky, challenging problems are yeah. still the same. Um, transmission cost allocation, um, you know, BA consolidation and deep hanging transmission rates, those are really hard things to try to accomplish and I don't know that that will ever be easier, right? And those were most, if you look at the retrospective, those were the kinds of issues that really kind of created breakdowns. Um, when you get into the details and you start seeing, you know, who are the winners and losers, you know, how are things being balanced and things like that, it ends up kind of being too hard um, at the end of the day. Those yeah. issues are still the same. Um, the other thing that I think is the same that I was really sort of, thinking about today as the group was talking is that sort of the political realities are still the same. Yeah. And 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 I think that to me is is a really challenging component of this. Is there actually a forum where, you know, the West can collectively come into a place and say we wanna we want to solve these problems. And we have a governance structure that is in place that can help us do that. Or, and I mean, I call it governance, but it's really overall a structure. Is there a place to a forum, a structure that can figure out how to uh, tackle these challenging issues and kind of break down some of those political barriers um, to, to, to be able to kind of break through the other side? 
Um, and I, I think those are sort of the, in, in my mind, that type of forum that um, can kind of bridge those political divides is what's needed. And everybody okay. has to trust in that process. And I don't know that that, in my mind, is sort of clearly defined at this point. Yeah, that's a similar to what happened before. That's, uh, But I did want to get back to the drivers of what's different than last time. Because we did talk in the room a little bit about like those drivers can help you resolve some of the future issues. So um, you mentioned a couple of them on decarbonization uh, and the, the, the load impacts uh, of flexible load. I think I also heard electrification of load is another big driver. What else did you all hear? And there, was there anything else you wanted to underscore? Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I, I think um, a big thing is reliability. Um, I think this, that's probably number one, two, and three, because if the lights start going out because we have great policies that we can't implement, uh, we will lose public support for all of those policies. So, um, you know, five years ago, the, uh, the West was awash with a lot of surplus power. A lot of that power has been since... Um, basically t retired. Um, yeah. We have grown uh, in terms of, of supply, uh, not supply, but we've grown with respect to uh, load yep. leading on that. And I think everybody understands the fact that unless we do a better job of sharing what's there um, in a transparent way where everybody knows what's going on, um, we will continue to have problems. There's, there's no easy answer there. It's, um, we just have to manage. A tra this transition is hard. I think people kind of soft pedal this for a long time. We're moving from something that's completely different than we're used to, that the system's been designed around. And so I think that the ability to um, to move to an original approach where this is more transparent, works better, um, I, I think that's a really principal driver at the kind of what I was hearing to the discussion today. Yeah, and, and I'm hearing again from you, like, this distinction between, like, the reliability driver of the conversation is also different than the regulatory driver of the prior conversation. I wanted to get your perspective a little bit, Chris, on, like, what's happening this time around. Is it different sure. from the, the North? Well, I, I agree with the points already made, particularly the reliability one. Um, but but from my perspective, I think necessity is is stronger at this point yeah um, okay um while i was out getting my second sandwich off of the buffet of i came course. back in it's a great idea and and, cookie, and I hope. in hindsight it wasn't a great idea but um when i came back in i noticed they were doing a poll over which utilities were already more than 95 percent non-carbon emitting um we are there weren't very many hands up nope. um we are one of them um and then after that there was um i think people were talking about a sense of urgency about uh, carbon goals that um, very unclear how those could possibly be reached for many of the utilities. Um, uh, so I, I think that's the big difference is uh, it's really uh, what do they call it? Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where we're at. And in the Northwest, maybe that's where we need to be at in order to make progress. Yeah. We need that necessity to yeah. drive the conversation forward. Jim, what else did you hear today? Is there anything you wanted to add? Well, first of all, I agree with a lot that's said already. I think the other piece of this is, uh, number one, affordability is yeah. also a, a key issue. And I think what we're seeing is in order to do this reliably and affordably, we need to be working together. We need that diverse footprint. We need the load diversity, the resource diversity, the climate diversity, the load diversity in order to help us manage this going forward. I think the other thing that's different than probably some of the past efforts is I think you're seeing a lot of new faces at the table 
that perhaps weren't there before. Okay. A lot more interest from the regulators than perhaps there was in the past. Uh, clearly, consumer groups are at the table. They are interested in what's happening. Environmental groups are at the table wanting to push this. So I think we're seeing a lot more interest, a lot more pressure. And the other thing is the uh, a lot of the states, I'm from California, we're one, uh, have very aggressive goals. Yeah. Uh, and when you start looking at where we're at today versus when those timelines are coming at us, uh, we're, if anything, we're behind trying to get the resources and the processes in place. So I think we need the collaboration to get there. I think the other thing that maybe reinforced the need or maybe not so much the need, the recognition of the historical reliance within the Western interconnection on each other if I look at August of 2020, if I look at September of 2022, uh, key to that was the collaboration and the ability for us to work together yeah. to make sure the lights stayed on. So I think that's another piece of this. Yeah, there was another conversation that seemed to come up in the room was these uh, broader weather patterns that are, are reaching bigger footprints. It is a change in like the system we're operating within that I think we need to acknowledge. Um, is there anything else we wanted to touch on about how this conversation is different? I mean, one thing that was mentioned in the room is probably worth underscoring is I think we all kind of see that the status quo is no longer viable. And, and Chris, that kind of speaks to your point about um, the necessity is the mother of invention. Like, do, do you feel like we're all seeing that similarly and that was underscored adequately today that the status quo probably isn't a viable path forward anymore? I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's probably accurate. You know, we're an EIM participant, and when we um, when we joined EIM, we did it for a couple of reasons. One is we we really thought it was it, it's a market evolution, and it, it was kind of the first step in that evolution. And um, you, you got to kind of go along with the evolution, right? And then um, the other one was we were fearful that market liquidity would dry up in the real time yeah. market, and um, it, it really hasn't. Um, which is kind of a surprise. Um, have, don't haven't really gotten to the bottom of that, but there's um, much there's a lot more activity in the real time market in the Northwest than I would have thought there would be at this time. So I don't I don't know I don't know the answer to that. I, maybe with with the next step, it's going to be different because the volumes. So um, we'll see. Yeah, uh, interesting because there is still we're still working in this paradigm where um, we can have hypotheses on what the future is looking like, but we can like view the the trend lines differently on where we're going. Yeah, yeah. yeah which I think uh, we still got to work through and, and talk about. Um, we So we've gone through the PGP market retrospective. <coughs> I think it is always good to ground this conversation with, like, you can't have compassion fatigue because we have been talking about these. We've failed before. Um, but I did want to pivot. Like, one of the topics today was, like, barriers, opportunities, and benefits of uh, regional expansion. And, and it resonated with me, and I got uh, the framing of the next question, if you're all ready for it. So Harrison Ford plays a character named Paul, who during this comedic exchange about his colleagues not knowing anything about his personal life, responds with, quote, Look, I don't have people in my home. It, it's not that I'm antisocial. I know you do this, meaning uh, picking on him about pushing on his personal issues, to shame me because I'm a somewhat private person, but it just strengthens my resolve. I'm pro-boundaries. My family is for me. My home is my fortress of solitude. So, uh, Jim, uh, the California Assembly Bill 538 
uh, introduced by Assembly Member Christopher Holden, proposes revisions to the way governance could work for the California Independent System Operator, which in, in some ways changes the ISO's metaphorical boundaries. Um, so bank is both public power, you're in California, you're a member of the EIM, or you're participant, sorry, in the EIM, but you are not a member of the California Independent System Operator. Okay. So can you talk through um, what, how you engage with market participation, how you're thinking about this issue, what market participation has meant to public power in, in California, and talk about those benefits, opportunities, and barriers of joining, like changing the ISO's boundaries from your perspective? Sure. Uh, you know, are you I've, pro boundaries? Within limits. Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, it was a, it was a good quote. You haven't seen it yet, but it's a good quote. I'm looking forward to watching yeah. it. Um, so I'm often I often refer to myself as the non-Californian within California. That's right. And uh, there's a lot of history behind that. You're a Northwesterner in California, right? That' what I heard today. Well, uh, so far the Pacific Northwest has not revoked my visa, so <laughs> I'm allowed to come back up here. Um, you know, when I, first of all, looking at public power within California. There's a broad range of public power entities. Some yep. have been within the ISO or ISO members uh, are fully within that market. And then there are those of us like uh, a bank, an LADWP, who are separate balancing authorities, uh, have been a little reluctant to participate in the ISO. Uh, I think EIM was our first uh, toe in the water. I can say from bank's perspective, uh, it has far exceeded our expectations. Okay. Uh, if you go on the quarterly uh, benefits uh, analysis that the ISO, ISO does, uh, bank repeatedly comes in at at least number three, if not higher, and in the quarterly benefits. And I keep asking Elliot if he'd please send me a check for that amount of money. But um, so clearly, we see uh, benefits from a financial standpoint that far exceeded what our expectations were. But probably equally, if not more important to us was the fact that we also see reliability benefits okay. from participation in the real-time market. Uh, I think that was reinforced in September of, of 2022, where I think EIM helped us keep the lights on. And then the other thing is it's helping us from an environmental standpoint in allowing a, a better way or an easier way to integrate renewables yep. into, the, into the footprint. So... We're very high on EIM. We're in the middle of evaluating the day-ahead market, EDAM, as an opportunity. I haven't made that decision yet as an entity. I hope to be able to have some kind of a feel for that by mid-year, but we're doing the evaluation. When I look at the legislation, I kind of look at the legislation as an opportunity for California and the rest of the West to engage in some serious dialogue okay. about what are the issues that have faced us in the past, are facing us in the future, that have made life hard for us to work together, and what could we do to make those easier? I do think that at the end of the day, California wants to be a participant in a broader Western market, whether that's an RTO or a day-ahead market I won't get into. I think different people have different views on that. But I do think California recognizes that for us to be successful, to meet our goals, to meet that reliability, affordability issue we talked about earlier, uh, we need to be part of a broader market. And so we, we want to engage in that. I think the legislation allows us to do that. It will be a tricky road. 
not everybody in California. Yes, not everybody in California is ecstatic about uh, have a broader market and be part of that. Uh, governance change for the ISO, uh, it will be a challenge to get there. But I think uh, those of us that are in the industry in California recognize the need and the desire to work to try to make that happen. Yeah, I think I heard today it iterated that California is not a monolith. Um, I think it's fair to say the Northwest isn't a monolith and the West isn't a monolith either. Uh, Chris, can you talk a little bit about like legislative change in California, governance changes, and what, like where where we are in the Northwest and, or where Tacoma is and, sure. and like the way you think about governance and its importance? Yeah, yeah. Um, so take just take a little step back. Um, so where we are is we actually are very supportive of the concept of expanding markets and expanding geographical footprints, really everything everybody agreed on today. Yeah. And I don't, honestly, I don't know that many people that aren't, at least in the circles that I run around in, in the Northwest. Um, our, our concerns are, I tried to articulate a little bit today, but um, you, the market needs to kind of work for everybody. Um, and the rules of the market, the market design, uh, the price formation rules, that sort of thing, um, need to ensure that uh, everybody, both buyers and sellers, are getting the right price signals and um, prices are equitable and that sort of thing. So that's where most of our concerns are. They're, they're really things that I think are solvable if the will is there. Um, but I can't solve them. I'm just a small utility in Pierce County, uh, Washington. And th- at the end of the day, it's really going to be up to uh, the folks in you know California, the, 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 the legislature um, and other organizations in California um, whether this becomes a market that um, is appealing to a hydroelectric interest like us in the Northwest. Yeah. So yeah. That's our issue. But we're definitely, we don't, we don't have boundaries. You don't have boundaries. We don't have boundaries. <laughs> your public power, you're open. To, we're open. You're open. It's I not to say that. it's not going to be a challenge. We are BA. BA consolidation is going to be a difficult conversation. Yeah. RTO is going to be a very difficult conversation when the time yeah. comes. Yeah. Uh, Mary, anything else you heard today that you wanted to weigh in on around... Uh, either Assembly Bill 538 or the governance changes and legislative ch- changes needed to address it? Sure. I mean, I think one of the, one of the key themes, too, that, that kind of came out specifically with this legislation is sort of a chicken and egg kind of thing. You know, do you need to have, you know, do you sort of change governance first and then let that structure kind of guide the formation of a market to Chris's point to see if people want to join? Um, or do you need to really first have what that structure is in place so that you know everybody's serious about it, so it's going to be worth it, and then change the governance? And, and I think for me, that is a real, that's a real kind of sticky wicket in terms of, you know, which how, how do you sort of, not make the change until you know something's going to happen. But then, you know, for people on the outside, well, we don't want to spend half of our lives, basically, ironing out this really challenging governance structure without knowing that the governance is going to change. So yeah. um, I, I do think I don't I haven't come up with a brilliant idea yet on how to how to kind of get that weave that or uh, what's the thread that needle. There you yeah. go. You found you it. Nailed it. Yes. You found nailed it. it. Um, but I do think that's a that's a real challenge. But again, I think I do think that's actually solvable. Yeah. You know, it it feels to me a little bit like a kind of contract negotiation where you're kind of trying to put in the right provisions so that you make you know take the right steps at the right time. Um, 
So, but again, it's just sort of if the will is there to, to really, you know, roll up the sleeves and solve that problem. Yeah. So, Jan, I, I learned today that you were uh, the second chair of the ISO governing body. I, I was. Yes. I was one of, uh, by the way, a great trivial question is I'm, I'm a proud uh, customer of SMUD. Uh, and and uh, okay. so the trivial question in terms of uh, looking back on all this is the for who was the first chair? And that was Dick Ferreira. Right, who was, Dick Ferrer. Uh, he lasted one meeting before his boss said, well, you can either be um, the chair of the ISO, or you can continue being very successful assistant general manager of SMUD. He chose wisely. Okay. Um, so at that time, we had a uh, we were all appointed by something called the Oversight Board, which was three captains uh, of capitalism that checked our you know uh, uh, resumes, and so it was a twenty six person board. So I got to be okay. the circus guy in the middle with the hat, and, um, and it worked very well. For okay. a couple of years, it worked great. I mean, the people were very committed. It was like the moon launch. It was personally very fun and a high point in my career. But uh, when the, mar- the market started to unravel over a, a variety of issues, but the, when it unravels, everybody who was a stakeholder kind of ran to their stakeholder positions, which was very difficult to be making decisions when, in fact, you have a fiduciary duty to your the corporation, which is the ISO, as well as you are representing these interests. So... Bert ordered us to disband the stakeholder board, appoint an independent board, which we were in the process of doing before the legislature put forward the um, mechanism we have now with the governor appointing and the the Senate approving. And there's a whole process underneath that, which passed for muster. There's uh, six um, stakeholder groups that comprise the six people. So the, the people they had appointed there have been pretty well vetted and we, I don't think we've ever put like a ex-political figure on the board. So it's it, it is you know I was a political science student, so there's no okay. way to claim that this is an independent board. But on the other hand, it's you know I'm not sure that if you asked the governor who holds on the board, he, he would have a uh, he, he he would know. But at any rate, that that said, we get that. So I think from the standpoint of the of the bill, and this is where people have to have uh, expectations that are that are realistic. First of all. It is a you know, public benefit corporation. It's we've spent hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars creating this entity. So you just can't hand it over <laughs> um, or say we're going to like operate this for a while until we decide who's you know a, a better board structure. So there, uh, I, I think what Mr. Holden's trying to do is to create the situation where um, you you can basically do that if, if somebody shows up a another utility or, or, or a publicly owned utility said, hey, we want to join, what does that structure look like? And how do you have it flexible enough so as, so people can join it and, again, recognize the fact that it's supposed to be an independent board that's looking for basically how to move electrons around. Okay, they, And, yeah. again, this is – and we'll go too far down this path, but it doesn't make its own policies. So, so far, the ISO has, I think, done a pretty good job of implementing – I think they were the first ISO in the, in the country to have a separate desk for renewables because no one had ever done that before. So I mean, very effective in trying to get that forward, pretty effective in being able to track greenhouse gas emissions and whatever else, again, not from a regulatory perspective, but just for this is what's, what's gone on the grid. Um, so, so at any rate, getting to a point where we can modify that board structure in a way that recognizes that, uh, you know, that, that it, that's, that was its job and also... And I'll close on this one. You know, a lot of people are looking at California, and sometimes there's been things that have happened that people kind of go, wait a second. 
the flip side is true as well. So there's still a hangover from 2000, 2001, where there are forces afoot in California that kind of felt that they were taken advantage of by resources elsewhere that, that could be produced very, very cheaply and sold to California for $250, uh, you know, ago. So at, at any rate, so that's there. And so the question is being able to overcome that and move on because I think that's in the best interest of everybody. Otherwise, uh, we're going to get trapped in sort of nostalgia about what happened in 2000, 2001, or some other point yes. in time along the way. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that, because I do think it's helpful to acknowledge like both, uh, or the entirety of the West feels trauma from the energy crisis. Yeah. And, and I think I heard from you today, there's still in California some carry-on effect um, and hard feelings, we'll call them, towards participants in outside of non-California. You know, that's what I heard today. And yeah. I think in the Northwest, maybe we, we don't acknowledge that enough. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, Mary? Do, do we don't acknowledge that enough? Or was that just, uh, I don't know. We all have trauma, and uh, we all probably need to work through I that think, energy crisis trauma together. I, I am not a psychologist. And neither and am I. Should, I watch Shrinking, though. Yes, I watch Shrinking, so... I watched two episodes, so I can... Well, you're a professional now. But, I mean, so a lot of people, as you mentioned, experience trauma in the energy crisis, and it seems like when you have experienced trauma, it might be hard to uh, be sympathetic with others that might have also experienced trauma, in particular when you think it was probably their fault. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I, I think it's I, I, I don't think it's I think it's I think it's I think it's challenging. So, you know, it's it's not so much maybe it's not recognized, but it's psychologically difficult to be sympathetic in that circumstance. Yeah, potentially. Anybody else want to comment on the trauma? I, I'm happy. I mean, this is the, the shrinking. We framed this entire episode about the psychological and emotional, <laughs> the, all the vibes. Get through the vibes. Now, now, now I wish I had watched the show. I, yeah. I feel uh, disadvantaged here. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think there are those within California and those outside of California who feel like they got, excuse my French, screwed in the energy crisis. I don't think we have to beep that even. I don't think. I think Probably we don't. Do that no, I, I don't think you have to take, take that out. Um, and I think if we're going to move forward, we need to acknowledge, yes, it happened. Yeah. None of us are happy that it happened. Some of us got hurt by it. But if we are going to move forward, we have to put that behind us yeah. and be willing to talk about what do we need in the future. And then, you know, we had an interesting dialogue about that earlier this afternoon, and, and Mary raised it again, is you know, what needs to be in place as far as governance for people to feel comfortable and it's a little bit of a chicken and egg syndrome that we have here because and, until you know what the footprint is and what the tariff is going to be, that will influence in some degree what the governance should be. So I think we can come up with a concept, maybe a template, maybe a letter of understanding or a, that says if we move forward, this is what we, these are the basic features of a governance that we need to have in order to move forward. But I, I think we would be probably kidding ourselves if we said, well, let's define the detailed governance structure today until we understand who the players, what, uh, the footprint, what the tariff look like. I think that will influence some of the governance decisions. Yeah, can we talk a little bit more about that? Because I do think this is an area where we need to make sure like each other know where they're coming from and can kind of understand the perspective. Because... I think Mary, you articulated from a Northwest person's perspective. Like I don't, we don't want to spend, 
years on governance that isn't going to go anywhere. And I think we've heard that California does want some like commitment to moving forward in order to move change. Uh, and I think Jan, you kind of articulated that as well. It, is there more we need to unpack there about the respective positions of the entities that we need to kind of make sure we've shared? Can, can I ask a question? Absolutely. And, and th this is for this follow-up to, I think, what both of you have said. And it might be a little provocative, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. But please take it in that vein. Um, so, you know, you said that historically after the crisis, there was an effort to set up a board that was independent and that the legislature kind of stepped in yes. and, and did what it did for a reason. Um, but I'm also, what I struggle with a little bit is why can't we just make the board independent? You know, why, um, especially if the governor doesn't, can't even name the appointees, right? I mean, it's, it's maybe not even a, a body that he tries to exert political pressure over. I don't know. But if that was the direction that California was going at the time, you know, what is unacceptable about simply making the board actually independent, um, even even in the absence of some type of like elaborate RTO structure? Well, that is a good question, and the, the reality is is that the, the process of how you choose who the who the independent board members are would be uh, would be a uh, is a thing at the heart of that issue. So uh, if you look at the, you know, Western uh, uh, energy and balance market, there was sort of a transition there that that seemed to be somewhat of a non, uh, created no uh, attention to the legislature or anybody else. That seemed like a, uh, a good way of, of moving things forward. And ultimately, there may be something similar to that, that that's what you end up with. Um, getting back in Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine, which a lot of people who listen to this will have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> so sorry that I don't. Yeah, yeah, I don't well, and, you know, well, no, I have cultural context. You don't have any yeah, cultural yeah, well, context. Yeah, Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> okay, that, that's okay. my, my framework of the, of the world. Uh, but, if you, uh, but, you know, at, uh, at the time, uh, the, the, I guess from the state's perspective, is everything went to hell in a handbasket because FERC wasn't doing their job. So just uh, a little bit of since one of the values I have, if one of the very few, is that since I've lived through all that, I can share stories. But, you know, California, when we created our structure that led to the ISO and everything else, the entire California congressional delegation sat in a room having lunch. This is the first time I think that ever happened. It has never happened since. And signed a letter that basically told – it was designed to tell for hands off of the California business model because, you know, we, this is – this work of art we did. Okay, fine. So that was signed by all the congressmen, and FERC knows about that. So when the wheels start falling off the, the train in, in, uh, at the ISO, it's sort of let them figure it out, let them sort it out, let them sort it out. That gets translated, however, by you know, the people uh, at that time, Governor Davis, as they're not doing their job. So they jump in, and, you know, so, th so that's really at, at one point where, where we end up. So I would love to see a process that could just sort of move through, um, you know, with, without any sort of creating a new oversight board or any other kind of new structure that gets there. Um, that's above my pay grade right now. I think we need to come up with some good suggestions that everybody's comfortable with. <clears throat> there are other ITOs, uh, uh, RTOs around the United States that have independent boards, and they exactly. seem to be competently run. And yeah. most, uh, even non-RTO Transmission entity seems to have boards of directors that 
know what to do. And, and again, most of what being a, a board member of an RTO or ISO is you're not doing, you're not creating energy policy. You're not creating greenhouse gas standards. You're trying to implement what the states are doing. And so, um, you know, from my, from my standpoint, if we can come up with a simple way where people kind of go, okay, that, that, looks, that look, looks about right. We're, we're okay. And again, this is not a government entity. That one dime of the taxpayer dollars goes into the ISO in California. Right. So its budget isn't approved. And just one other note, the governor can't remove a board member. So in a lot of situations, the PUC or whatever, going on, I don't, maybe not the PUC, but you know, we, don't like you, we don't like the job you're doing at this commission. You can find yourself on the street pretty quick. That, that, that's, that isn't how this is structured. So at any rate, getting to your point, getting something that basically uh, – you know, it is, is, uh, can move relatively quickly, and people can buy off on coin. That looks like a, a group of people that, you know, can hand keys to the transmission system and, you know, move on. I, I would want to follow up a little bit, and maybe there's more perspectives on this, but one of the impediments is it does take legislative change no matter what, right? right. So it can't just have an independent board. I think we heard some today that we do need to be practical about the, the politics and the, that it needs legislative change. Somebody's got to count the votes. Um, and so maybe that is part of why like, the easy button is not, not so easy. Not yeah, so not easy. It's, it's easy but not simple or simple but not easy or simple but not easy. Yeah. Is there anything else we wanted to talk a little bit more about um, this, uh, this I'm pro-boundaries? Um, anything, anything else we need to tease out here? We want to move on to another conversation. Last time around, there was legislation about five years ago, and five years ago, the issues were uh, that this was an effort just to keep coal plants operating elsewhere in the region. Okay. Um, there was concerns about we had a change of administration, if you'll all recall, uh, that somehow California's carefully crafted um, uh, greenhouse <laughs> gas standards and everything else were going to be ripped away by FERC and whatever. Well, none of that came to pass. And in the meantime, um, pretty much... Most of the Western states, with maybe two, uh, two, two exceptions, have uh, what I would call complementary policies. They're not exactly what California is doing or vice versa, but they're complementary. So, um, so that's changed significantly. But those were boundaries before um, that I think now create an opportunity because there's no way in the world uh, we are, everybody's going to get to their climate change goals if we don't do this cooperatively. We're going to get this to this in a minute because... You know, greenhouse gas gases, nor do the you know, electric charges. You know, really respect political boundaries of the states. So, um, so I think this, in terms of boundaries and releasing them, I think there's, you know, that that's a, a, a significant benefit there. And then last but not least, I mean, a lot of, and, and I think you referenced in that earlier. So, and and I know Jim, this is near dear to his heart, is transmission costs. There are no two utilities anywhere on the planet that have the same transmission costs. It's an issue of vintage. There's all kinds of issues. And yeah. I spent several months of my life trying to negotiate between Los Angeles, Department of Water and Power, and Edison. And, and that was what I was just, uh, well, as far as part of the ISO. And that, that didn't go anywhere because there was you know, significant difference in the cost there. That's flipped, by the way, in the 20 years since. So, yes. So, you just, so this, this is one of those things. And I know foundationally this is always going to be an issue. And so you have to, and we had to do that pretty enough the ISO, used to call it carrier own dead. There was a, a point in time where the utilities continued to carry for their uh, uh, for their transmission, and they basically 
uh, blended it uh, several years in, if I recall correctly. So okay. that, you know, there's, there's ways of, of getting around that. Yeah, I think uh, the context about the, what was different last time, because there was an attempt to change this five years ago, and, and it, there were some political differences between then and now. I, I did want to just, before we move on to the next question, talk a little bit about um, public power and the way boundaries and public power, and, and it was talked a little bit today about being FERC non-jurisdictional entities, and the Northwest maybe particularly um, because of the Bonneville Power Administration, um, has their own like like sensitivity towards governance and sensitivity towards changing those boundaries. Chris, I, I'd pitch it to you to see if yeah. you have some commentaries around that topic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely an issue. I mean, and for some more than others, but in the Northwest, uh, local control is a big deal. Yeah, I think um, I feel like we're the we're the Harrison Ford in this conversation. We like we're like pro boundaries. We're like, well, yeah. I, I don't. It's not like yeah, you I said. Mean, it's yeah. not a monolith. It's different. Like, yeah. like honestly, I think the way my utility operates, if um, you know, whether it's joining EDAM or joining a Westwide RTO, made economic sense and operational sense for us. That's probably where we'd go. Yeah, I don't think we would be. We would find. Um, you know, lo- local governance as a constraint. I mean, in a way, local governance has already been rated by state legislation in our state. Okay. When I started um, in this industry, we were much more, there was much more local control than there is now. So it's it's been kind of going away anyway. But it is important to some, I do hear people talk about it a lot, and it's important to some utilities, public utilities. Is there, um, like from a, one of the, I think interesting dynamics in the Northwest is the Bonneville Power Administration and their like unique status as a federal agency. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, anybody want to talk about that dynamic when it comes to governance and also the way their constituency, which is public power, who is a power purchase, like all of their major, all of their customers of preference <laughs> products or preference customers, which are public power entities, um, and the way their decision making is is this has this broad constituency of uh, public power interests and how that can can interact with governance within an RTO. There's a lot to unpack there, and maybe it's a conversation for some future discussion. But I do think actually maybe Jim, there is some corollary to the way bank um, operates within California. Uh, so maybe one one aspect, and it's not Bonneville, it's the Western Area Power Administration. You know, they made a decision five, six years ago to uh, take one of their regions and join an RTO. Yeah. So they are they are in an RTO with that region. And there were valid reasons for it. And they did have to get some special treatment, which the RTO offered them because of their federal requirements. But I, I think there's a way of getting there. Um, Within Bank, uh, one of my participants, not a member of Bank, but a participant of Bank, is the, the Wapa Sierra Nevada region. Okay. All right. And they serve uh, customers within my footprint, and they serve customers within the ISO footprint. And so as they're looking at how do we move forward with a market, um, they have to look at the benefits to my customers, my members. They have to look at the benefit to those customers that are in the ISO. Um, one of the discussions we've had is, Okay, well, if WAPA Sierra Nevada region goes and joins SP Markets Plus, that means you'll have some of your, your, your generation will be in one market, 
half of your load will be in another market. You have a market seam you have to manage and, and deal with. Is that what you really want to do? Um, so I, I, I think there's a lot of discussion around that. And, of course, they have their federal requirements. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, uh, they can work within the structure of an RTO or a, a day-ahead market or some yeah. other governance structure. I mean, to be blunt, uh, WAP is in EIM, and uh, they're figuring out how to, to deal with that. Yeah, and Bonneville's in and EIM. And Bonneville's in EIM yeah. as well. And, and yeah, we're creative people at Bonneville. Gotta, gotta love them. They're, they're, they're wonderful. Um, I'll, I'll pivot to the next topic um, and thinking about decarbonization pathways and the roles of regional markets. I'm going to start with you, Jan. So electric utilities are all going through this energy transition. We're all kind of doing it together. Chris, you mentioned earlier um, this legislation within Washington State, which, which drives us to decarbonization. Um, this increased electrification, replacement of carbon-emitting resources with zero-emitting resources, behind-the-meter resources, the portfolio planning for decarbonization pathways. Uh, and and I, I thought of when I was watching this show this great converse exchange between Paul, played by Harrison Ford, and, and Jimmy's daughter, um, Alice, played by Lukita Maxwell, where she expresses in, in going through her issues that no one gets what she's going through. And Paul tells her, I quote, well, I know someone who gets it. He's tall, and he calls me too much, referring to her father, who's going through this same grieving process and transformational process at the same time. But they aren't talking to each other, uh, which is kind of conflict and a comedy. That's how, uh, that's how you get laughter. So electric utilities can, can empathize with each other during this transition, right? We know what each other is doing if we talk to each other especially utilities in states with similar legislative and policy initiatives for transformational decarbonization. I think there's a lot of, of shared experience there and shared um, sharing of sometimes trauma, let's be honest. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, Jan, whether you heard that empathizing today with the, the entities in the room, and can you help synthesize uh, the conversation from the day on the role of electric markets and regional expansion for the decarbonization pathways? Yes, and um, I think he basically says, I know someone who knows exactly what you're going through because he's going through the same thing. Yeah, I think yes, that's the, the quote. And so, um, yes, and I, and I feel great being back in Portland. Actually, I began my professional career here. I'm looking right across the street here, across the plaza at the uh, – it was the Western Solar Utilization Network. And so okay. for 882, I was the local government program manager, so I got to go around the entire West – doing various kinds of solar access ordinances and those kinds of things. So I learned about the ABCs early on, anything but California. Okay. And I know this was on the table back then, so I'm, I'm, I'm hardened by all of that. <laughs> but what's, what has changed since then is this issue with, with respect to decarbonization. And what I really heard today was very different than conversations that I've been, I've been in a lot of meetings over the years, to, where there's regulators in the room and whatever else. Everybody, uh, you know what, I, Everybody in the room today, which was primarily Northwest and uh, in California, have decarbonization policies. Yeah. And as I said earlier, they're com complementary, but you have issues like how do you track it? Um, if, if you're a regulator, and you know how do you do that? And the ISO does do an okay job of basically being able to tell you what the carbon mix looks like. I mean, they're not a, they're not an enforcement right. association, right. but that, that's not what their job is. But they kind of try to try to track there. Um, and going forward, that's going to be very important. But when you have, you know, you, these are kind of constrained by political borders or we have control over this utility, so 
what are they buying? How is that working? And it's very important. It's obviously very important to the utility because it's sort of like you're you want to get credit for whatever you're you know paying for. So I, I think there's a lot of uh, growth in that area, a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, I don't think it's insurmountable, and I think that the ability to basically recognize the fact that we're all, as I said, we're all in this together. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's been a significant amount of decarbonizing in the West already. Speaking for my own state, um, when California began this in, in sort of the mid 2000s, uh, the electric sector was about 23 percent of the carbon emissions. It's now down below 14 percent. Half of that was because at that same period of time, we built out the natural gas fleet, which backed out a lot of the coal. Yep. Uh, at, at that time, we were 16 percent coal. We're down, down I think, below 2 yeah. percent. Very, very. So there's a lot of progress been made, and, and, and so that's about half of it was there, and the other half came from a significant introduction of, of solar and wind, which I represent those folks too. So we've got a pretty good resource mix. When you look around the West, there is a, a significant resource mix that you know can, can, I think can go a long way in meeting these goals. But as I said earlier, this is going to be really hard. Yep, it's going to be really uh, hard. We have 100%, uh, well, we have 100%, let's see, clean. We have got, it's also sometimes described as carbon neutral, uh, there's, there's about three different definitions that we haven't thought about that yet. But everybody, I think, in the West has a similar thing. It was, And I was listening to somebody just recently uh, who's well-respected in California opine that you know, getting to 85% of, you know, of that goal with the technologies that we know today, that we have today, is doable and it's probably doable in an affordable way. But that last 15%, yes. you know, there's some seventh grade girl working in a science class right now studying who will come up with this, you know, 15 years from now in a graduate paper or whatever. Uh, who knows? Okay, so yeah. I, and I and I think that that's it's in our, it's in our collective best interest to kind of try to figure out how we to move this thing forward in in, in a western regional way because otherwise we're we're not going to get there. Yeah. Uh, so it is a. Like, the pain of moving through this and transforming the grid, I think you're articulating really well. But it, it came out today. Um, it also is a, like really important from a regulator's perspective to be able to track this thing is one of the things I heard today. And those tracking mechanisms maybe don't exist robustly for compliance today. Mary, do you want to talk about carbon uh, compliance pathways and uh, the ways we can uh, work together to solve this? Or would you like to change topics? No, I can, I can, I'll, I'll try to be brief if I can. I mean, I think the, I think the central challenge is related to what we are talking about before, sort of about local control, right? I mean, states need to retain the ability to meet their energy goals and comply with their energy goals and, and know and have evidence that shows that they have met their, their goals. And as you move into a regional market, the whole point, right, is to, is to reduce friction, reduce bilateral friction, you know, use the electric grid like a big pool, you know, and that makes it a lot more challenging to actually know, have any real certainty around what types of energy are serving your load because you're just in this big footprint. Yeah. So so I think you inherently move in the direction of making it harder to produce evidence of, you know, the type, the fuel type that is serving load in a particular geographic area within that market footprint. 
Um, so it becomes harder to sort of produce that evidence. At the same time, the whole point of a regional market is to enable, in some respects, decarbonization and reducing emissions. So there's there's this real tension, um, and I think I think if we can kind of like level set on that sort of central thesis, then hopefully that can be kind of the the somebody said it today the pole star or the you know something that's sort of grounding everybody in where we're trying to go. Um, I don't want to scare states into thinking that the idea is to change all of their policies all around. Yeah. You know, um, but I do think there has to be some recognition that the what exists today is something that is probably unworkable. Even even within states, you know, you, you have states who, like, I mean, Washington is a great example, right? There was a ballot measure passed on 937 <laughs> In 2007, 2007. Um, and and that was an RPS, and many states passed RPSs in that same time frame, and the RPS policies actually had a very different intent than your SB 100s or your CETAs. You know that the RPS was really about kind of kickstarting the renewable renewables. Um, but if you but. Now, if you're really thinking about decarbonization, you need to credit and think about activities that don't produce renewable generation but reduce emissions. Yeah, okay. And, and so how are you going to kind of track and credit those activities? You really actually need to track emissions and renewable energy, and you need to have kind of a rational system of doing so in order for everybody to kind of have confidence in, in the fact that they're meeting their goals. So it's a, it's a challenging topic. It's actually one that, you know, PGP has, has been um, doing some thinking about. And, you know, you – and I know there's a lot of conversations out there about developing kind of a tracking system. I don't, I don't think that a tracking system solves our, all of our problems because you have to – like there are very strong opinions out there among states, across states, among stakeholders that have, like, actu- like, actual different perspectives on what should be tracked and how it should be tracked and, and what, what it means. And so I, I do think there is some um, work to be done to kind of create some more consistency across, um, across that divide, too. And then, and then you can figure out what's the tracking system, right? But you kind of have to have that... Um, hopefully a common sort of perspective or, like, a tool to track that is doing what you want it to do in terms of incentivizing the behavior that you want to incentivize. And that there, there's, that's, there's a lot of work in this scope still to do, right? And some of it is the education, the listening, the learning from each other. And then uh, what, what was the other thing we had to do next? Negotiation. Negotiation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I absolutely think we're in the education We're phase, in the education, so. right? Yeah. And we're probably – need to start soon we'll need to start listening and learning and maybe that's part of the education and educate again but um i i want to pivot a little bit to just the shared interest right amongst electric utilities and the empathizing we can do um because of the shared challenge i'll go to you chris or jim if you want to speak up about whether you heard that empathizing in the room whether it's resonating with people that like we're we we do we're, we're facing this challenge together and we can uh we can grow in our community because we have this shared context and challenge 
Is there any I have, there? Is there well, a there? I've got there? a couple thoughts on that. And yeah. I'll, I'll try to be careful not to say anything to get myself into trouble here. But um, uh, the first thing, uh, you're, I thought it was a great question about empathy because I'm a huge advocate of empathy. Um, I think it ultimately leads to compromise when you, you know, have a better understanding of where you're able to see something from somebody else's perspective, right? Yeah. Um, I'd say it was a mixed bag today, but it really was kind of like a first conversation. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to have a shout out to Pam because I don't know if you caught it, but Pam sort of read back to us some of the things she heard, which kind of um, demonstrated to me that she was listening. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, Pam then, Sporborg, the Pam director Sporborg, of market yeah, initiatives yeah. for PG. Um, but with that said, I heard a lot of other things said in the room that um, you know indicated to me that people weren't listening and they were just more focused on listening's hard. Listening yeah. is really hard. It's much easier just to talk and yeah. not listen. Yeah. So there's that. Um, so, but I think you know we could do more of that. Um, and uh, I, I'm always a little cautious when people say they need to educate people because that implies that. They, they intend to do a lot of talking <laughs> and not enough listening. But um, on the second part of your conversation, um, it, I, I don't know if, if I'm understanding what, what it exactly, but I think what you're saying is should we all kind of throw in in the interest of the community? Or, you know, should we all, like, agree to, to go do something in spite of the fact that it might be not a good decision for our own customers is that is that no, that's not what I'm advocating for. No, no, no I know no, you're not no, advocating no, 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 for no. that, but is that no, what you're asking? More, no, is that what you're trying to get at? It's more the first part, which is like in order to to get to some sort of compromise, you need to listen well. Absolutely. And you, need to, you need to understand well what other people are doing. And part of what enables you to be able to listen well is when you're going through something, a shared thing together. That's part of like my my homework assignment of watching shrinking as a way to like grow the cultural context. Right. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's really valuable when forming community to like grow your cultural context so you can share, have shared experience together. And I think our energy transition like is a really good shared experience. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think yeah. you got to recognize though that we're at different places in it. It goes back to the poll. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't um, envy uh, some of the, you know, particularly the investor-owned utilities that have like really incredible work ahead of them in a very short period of time, which we heard today. Um, I'm very fortunate um, because of decisions made by people who worked where I work way before I've ever worked there, you know, with the hydro dams and all that stuff. So we're, we're pretty well suited. um, Whereas there's others that, you know, this is going to be just an incredible challenge for. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think we did hear some of that in the room, right? We are at different places. Yeah. And to your point earlier about raising our hands when uh, when we were asked if we were at this 95% threshold, like the Northwest entities have some advantage there because yeah. of... Uh, well, not some some of them. Some of them, yeah. good. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Yes, sorry. Uh, do you have anything you wanted to add, Jim? Any observations from today? On- uh, so I think uh, I, I agreed that I think we've started the empathy discussion. Um you know, 10, 15 years ago, I think if we had a discussion like this, we would have gotten the normal, what are you doing in California? You guys are crazy. This will never work. Um, California has been a little bit of an incubator and a learning experience for others. And I think the rest of the West and the, and the Pacific Northwest in particular is starting to realize, oh, this is coming our way. We have real challenges. We need to figure out how to manage this. 
So I think there is a, an initiation of that discussion. I think there's a level of, of understanding that there's, oh, we can learn something from each other, uh, that we're not 100% there yet. Yeah. Yeah, but we can, we're, we're at least partway there. We're, we're partway there, it. and, you know, what I think I heard today was we do agree there's benefit in more collaboration, and we need to figure out how to do that in a timely and effective way that we need to do more collaboration. Agreed. That's a great segue to the next and our, our last uh, topic to talk about. So um, the, the we want to talk I was framing some of the mutual benefits of this shared interconnection, right? The WEC, the WEC is a, a Western interconnect that is electrically interconnected. Um, California and the Northwest have this long history, and we talked about it a little bit today, of, of this mutual beneficial support through this efficient exchange of resources. And we, we heard a little bit about the history of the inner ties, um, which is what is kind of grounded uh, a lot of this shared benefit. Um, so after, in, in the show, shrinking, after a period of the conflict with his neighbor, Jimmy is, is venting to his colleagues, and, and Paul, played by Harrison Ford, just to underscore that, and Gabby, played by Jessica Williams, uh, about how involved his neighbor is in his daughter's life. Um, and Paul responds with, quote, hey, anybody that helps us raise our kids with love and respect, we should be grateful. Um, there's a lot of wisdom in, in there because it takes a community to raise children. That is my perspective on having children. It takes a lot of people and a lot of community. And it also takes, like, the physics of the interconnection to help us efficiently provide electric service. This is an interconnected system governed by the physics of the transmission network. Um, from, uh, I'm going to start with you, Chris. From what you heard today, do you think the conversation is grounded in this shared understanding of the mutual benefits of our shared interconnection and, and that we, we have value from ongoing collaboration, like regardless of how we participate in one day ahead market or regardless of whether you end up in, like today we're in a bilateral market in an ISO and we have this shared interconnection, and, and it is the physics of that interconnection that provides a great deal of value. Do, did you... Are we, are we grounding ourselves in that shared well, I think value? there's three questions there. And there are probably Let me see are. if I can keep them track in my head. I think the first one is that sort of a foundational element of everything we're discussing right now, and I think it absolutely is. Good. I think there's a very good understanding of, um, of that. Um, I think the second one was what you're asking me is um, perhaps historically or at the, at the moment, are we benefiting from that interconnection? And I think that's another very obvious, absolutely yes. Um, you know, we power goes back and forth, and um, I was, um, I don't know if Elliot would like me to tell this story, but we were having dinner with a group of folks in Portland, uh, maybe within the last year, and I was, um, we, I, I don't remember how the conversation got started, but we are just sort of commenting on um, how much luck factors into things, and it's almost yeah. scary. Yeah. Um, so there's been um, uh, several events where it was super warm up in this neck of the woods and not as down in California or vice versa. And we were able to import export, you know, um, and you, you know, you always worry, God forbid what happens when it's like that in both regions. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think I, I'd say we benefited greatly um, economically and from um, the standpoint of reliability. Right. So the other, the third part of the question gets into the uh, debate about seams, right? Which I, I'm going to start off by saying I am not informed enough to really have a well-informed um, opinion on seams. Um, I've heard people say seams are the worst thing in 
you that you could possibly have and um the you know the the sky's going to fall if there seems i've i've also heard people some people in the northwest say well seams are not ideal but um the <coughs> the economic loss associated with um being in a market with kaiso uh given current market rules and you know market design and and that sort of thing um would not, it, it, those costs would exceed the seam for them. So ultimately, I'm the kind of person where I need I need to have some analysis to um, get comfortable. Um, I can't really. I've, I've learned that about half the time when I make a hunch, I'm wrong. So I'm going to wait on that one and, and maybe be informed by some analytics. Yeah, I, uh, I, I took this from Tom Haymaker, who used to work at Clark. He's like he told me, um, like never run a model in your head. And I've extrapolated it to always be working on your mental model, but never run a model in your head. Uh, but I do think it's helpful. That Actually, let me make one more point. Um, yeah, please. I think there, maybe there was a fourth question. I, I think regardless of where we end up, and I don't know where we're going to end up, whether we end up with an EDAM or an R, a Westwide RTO, or if the SPP Plus thing works out, um, I, I think as long as the economics makes sense, we will always be trading with the state of California. Yeah. Um, th- we'll find a way. Uh, it might not be optimal as if it was one big region, but I think it'll continue to happen if, um, if, if it makes sense to, if, you know, and it probably will. Yeah. I, what, from what I heard from you is, is we're, we know the physics are as valuable when yeah. we all acknowledge that. And we know the, the, the relationship with California is, is providing value through this inner tie. And uh, the, the open question becomes like, wh- what does the seams do commercially? Jim, do you want to, do you have anything on the, the conversation today and an understanding of this? So I, I do think clearly that there's an understanding that collaboration has value, that we've gained value over the last, what is it, 30, 40 years of, of the interconnection and uh, working together on that. And I think there's an understanding that we want to maintain that value going forward. Yeah. Um, you know, my sense is at the end of the day, uh, I think the market will evolve. I don't think we're going to get an RTO tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to go into some kind of a day ahead market. My guess is in the Western interconnection, there will probably be more than one day ahead market. There will be seams. Uh, I don't believe seams are ideal, uh, but you know what? They work in the Eastern interconnection. They figure out how to manage them, and uh, life goes on. So I, I think we will find a solution. Um, you know, being an old WEC board member and, and looking at the West from a West-wide perspective, ideally I'd like to see us in one footprint and one in one market. Like I said, I don't think that's going to be reality. We'll just have to see how it evolves. But I think we'll work the seams out as we understand what they are. I'll uh, uh, I'll pivot to you, Jan, and we'll let Mary have the last word unless she like wants to ask questions along the way. But any any perspective on what we heard today and like the mutual benefits of, of yeah, I, I mean I think a lot has been said already uh, about you know how we uh, have been interdependent for many many years and a lot of the policies that we have are uh, are dependent upon that. Um, the the only thing I would add is actually uh, the, uh, Carla Peterman brought it up and it was repeated a couple of times is, is like watch the trends, follow the trends. Yeah. We all kind of know what's going on now. I live in a state where uh, in December we were in a drought. 
we now have 200 times uh, the, the average amount of snow and water we need, uh, and we may be flooding tonight. Um, Probably. Yeah, so, so we're going back and forth, you know, deluge, drought, deluge, drought, and that obviously has an impact. We're seeing the same thing go on, uh, obviously, the Colorado River, uh, which is very important to a large portion of California and other states in the West. You know, that, that's looking pretty severe. The weather, um, you know, when it hits 106, I, I, when I lived up here, I noticed when it hit 80 degrees, people up here got really cranky, much yeah. less 106. In Sacramento, 106, is that's just the beginning of summer, so it's no yeah. big deal. But, but at any rate, but you have these weather patterns and trends that are changing, and I think we need to be paying attention to, um, uh, you know, paying attention to that and sort of the assumptions we have about hydro, the assumptions we have about wind patterns, all of those things are subject to change and um, a, a larger footprint and being able to adjust to that, um, you know, I, I think uh, yeah, it has a benefit associated with it. Uh, so it's more of like, let's try to think forward a little bit. It's not going to be precise, but I mean, the reality is, is, you know, what, what are those weather, what are those weather trends? What are the you know, usage trends? And we only touched upon this very briefly, but, we have an insane amount of generation to add now. In California, we, yeah. it's like 89,000 megawatts of additional clean resources by 2045. It, it, so I'm not exactly sure how we're going to do that, uh, but I think it's also going to involve mutual uh, working with, with our neighbors and uh, on getting to that. And I think each state has a similar, you know, similar kind of goal. And um, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. But, I, you know... I'm happy that this discussion happened today. I was very impressed with the, um, the cooperative nature folks. A lot, it was a lot of good. You said, cited five different transmission uh, uh, attempts we made over uh, back in, back in yep. the day. I think the, the, the entire evolution of the Northwest coffee culture was uh, designed around going to those meetings. <laughs> Spent a lot of time going. I hadn't thought of Indigo in a really long time. But I went, oh yeah. Uh, so, but we, you know, uh, we've made a lot of progress since then because I thought what I was listening to today is people that were coming to the table with, you know, real life, you know, experiences. We've done this in the past. This is what we've learned, and it's sort of like if we're going to move forward, these are these are kind of the things we have to address. So, uh, for me, it was uh, actually I thought. Very positive meeting, and I think uh, with a lot of uh, thoughtful people that are actually looking for a solution and not kind of holding back, going like, well, we don't want to go down that path. So, Yeah, it seems like there's still some – we have to we have stuff to work through, but at least we're focusing on solutions instead of just focusing on the problem. Mayor, I'll give you the last words around uh, anything, but also if you heard the uh, like mutual benefit conversation and if there's anything from that you wanted to underscore or anything else, quite frankly. Well, absolutely heard the mutual benefit um, conversation and I think value and collaboration. You know, I think I, I definitely think there is value in just people in a room with other people that they don't normally talk to every day and and listening, you know, I, I, and, and meeting each other and building that relationship. I just think has value even setting aside, you know, what, what happens next. Um, the only other thing I would mention is something that Scott Kinney actually mentioned during the meeting when we were talking about RAP. And RAP was actually, we didn't talk about RAP very much, but RAP was actually um, discussed quite a bit kind of as a model of yeah. something that has been successful. And, and I, I think we shouldn't lose sight of that because I do think that we should 
we should look to what has worked, right? I mean, we've talked a lot about the other efforts that haven't worked and why, but we do actually have some successes, and let's look at let's look at those, and maybe that's a model to use moving forward. Um, but what Scott Kinney said was, you know, progress, not per- not perfection. Yeah. And that really resonated with me because yes. I do think that what gets really hard, like these, not that today was an easy conversation, but it was, it was, it was an initial conversation. And having been in some of these types of conversations in the past, what gets really hard is when you get down a couple layers deeper and all of a sudden you have real disagreements and people, people don't, they, they want what they want. And you know, you, you have to remember that it's not going to be perfect. You kind of have to move forward with some form of progress and that it is going to evolve and change along the way. And I, th- I think that is really important to, to keep in mind um, as we uh, move forward with this conversation. I agree 100%. Mm-hmm. Guidepost is the word we were looking guidepost. for. That's, guidepost you. is the word Thank that's you. got I like used. that. Yes. I like yes. that a lot, actually. Progress, not perfection, as the guidepost and yeah. how to get somewhere better and it, it doesn't have to be perfect yet but yeah. anything else we wanted to no. add before we close out no it's saying that perfection can be the enemy of the good yeah i think that's part of the problem that we face in our industry because you know there's whatever whatever we're designed is not going to be perfect someone's going to be it didn't get a squeeze enough carbon out but it was affordable whatever there's a whole line of things out there that are just we're going to need to address but but again i thought uh you know it was, the the meeting was very uh thought it useful and cooperative. I agree with everything you said on that. And I think we can be, it was a good use of a Friday. Good use of a Friday. Yeah, the, I, I often think we, we probably won't find the optimal solution, but we'll definitely find uh, at the, the equilibrium of a solution, right, if we work together. Any, any other closing thoughts? I'll kind of go around. Chris, any other things you wanted to close with? For the, no, the I electric was, utility enthusiasts. Um, I guess. Well, I actually what Mary said. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, rap rap was um, something that uh, the first time Frank came and talked to me about it, I was like, "This is never going to happen." Yeah. Um, but I think um, again, it was a necessity, right? I think everybody got to that point, and I, I think there was another element. I think there was really outstanding leadership, um, both with Frank and Sarah, that kind of got us there. So yeah. it's a, it could be a model. Yeah, celebrate your successes. That yes. seemed as a success. Yeah. Jim, anything you wanted to add as a closing thoughts? Or? Uh, just that I thought the uh, there was a lot of value in the conversation we had today. Uh, it's a starting point. I think the challenge and the, the test will be, can we move from here into more uh, detailed discussions that end up with some solutions down the end? Yep, start some solutioning. Yep. yep. Well, that's all the time we have. I hope you feel valued, seen, heard, and appreciated. Jim, do you feel valued? I feel extremely valued. Good. I appreciate that. That's what I was going for. Chris, do you feel seen and heard? By you, Paul, I absolutely do. Yes. yes. How about you, Mary? Do you feel seen, heard, valued, and appreciated? Yes. Thank you, Paul. Good. And what about you, Jan? This was We, we just met. We just met last night. Do you feel seen, heard, valued, and appreciated? I certainly do, and I hope to now be a podcast star based on this. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely you are. Yeah, yeah. You know, Knocked it out of the park. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. I'm looking success. forward to it. We're, we're here next week, right? There you go. <laughs> yes. Thanks. Every Friday in Portland. That's going to be awesome. <laughs>
Public Power Underground is a co-production of News Data and Seattle City Light. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and News Data. The views expressed here are our own and not the official views of Seattle City Light, the Energy Authority, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. And it's edited and published by the Stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources with sound mixing by Lucas Smith and video editing by Brendan Delson. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. You don't have to be subscribed to Newsdata's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch.